It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. Oh, yeah. I think about it all the time. It's an Upton Sinclair quote. That quote blows my mind on a daily basis. I was thinking about that today because there was another story about, oh, this commerce secretary guy. And it's like just another example of these people who uh, Trump has brought into the administration to regulate, you know, parts of the government that they used to benefit from. Yeah. I think about it a lot with in relation to coal miners, right? Uh These people that you sympathize with them and you in some ways pity them because they're good people that do an honest day's work and by accident of geography or family lineage or um, some other factor, they're born in a town that's that's dependent on an industry that just isn't the future. So the State of the Union happened tonight. Yeah, or whatever, or, the joint speech, speech to the joint session of Congress, Yeah, basically the State of the Union. And one of the things that Trump said was, We've lost more than one-fourth of our manufacturing jobs since NAFTA was approved. But the problem is that that's not, is that he's blaming the wrong... He's blaming the wrong thing. Yeah, it's not, I mean, sure, NAFTA hurt factory jobs, but automation and technology... Have done far more. Way bigger job exporters, if you can even call it that, job disappearers. Also China, which is not a member of the North American Free Trade Agreement. Oh, really? China has done a lot, right, of displacing manufacturing oh, yeah, I didn't uh, think in the about United that. States. I think it's a one-two punch. I don't think it's only one or the other. But I didn't think that, like, even if we had never signed NAFTA, yeah, China still China would have shown up and been like, yeah, we can make that stuff cheaper. Absolutely. That's completely... <laughs> I, I think it's completely um, irrelevant to the China equation, which actually, to be topical and to be kind of grounded in current events, uh-huh. um, also TPP was a big election right. issue. And um, TPP is Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was a free trade agreement between like a dozen countries in Southeast Asia. Maybe more of that. Maybe more than that. Um, I'll, I'll instant fact check that. Uh-huh. But basically the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, – it was a free trade agreement that was designed to be, as far as I understand it, designed to be the 21st century answer to NAFTA. And it was it's a it's a, a grouping of kind of roughly, let's call them Pacific Rim economies, uh-huh. um, minus China. Right. It's the, the box whole, China out. Exactly. The whole point of it was to be a collective counterweight to China's growing economic influence. And 12 members, you're right about that. Um, Boom. Yeah, it was good. There was a moment in one of the Republican debates where they're all talking about TPP and they're all, you know, how they all believe that it was terrible, blah, blah, blah. All of them are going on about how, you know, we can't be doing business with China. We can't be doing business with China. It was a great moment. And I don't say this often about the Republican debates. But Rand Paul goes, hey, Gerard, you know, we might want to point out China's not part of this deal. Yeah. True. It's true. That's right. That's right. So. China is a major factor in the loss of American jobs. But the other but major one is the major, automation. I mean, automation is changing the landscape in almost every field. I mean, if we're talking about something that's as, as old-fashioned as coal mining being affected by automation, like what isn't being affected? So no, Nothing isn't being affected. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I did a little research into the history of automation. I discovered Oliver Evans – a humble Delawarean who had the idea of automating flour mills. This is in the 1780s. 
he designed the a fully automated uh, flour mill, and they made fun of him, saying you'll never get the water to you know flow upstream or whatever, and builds it, and it works. Different reports I read said that he eliminated between 80 and 100% of the workforce. One report said that he he only needed one person to do what five used to do. Other reports say that he, in order to impress people, he would invite people to come and see the mill, and then he would turn it on and leave so that they would show up to a fully operational flour mill and that no one was inside. It's like a Willy Wonka trick or something. Yeah. Applies for a patent, he gets the third patent, like in the United States history. Goes to all. It's amazing. Right? Who was the first patent in I don't know. United States history? <laughs> I bet we could find that. But back then. It's either someone you've never heard of. Sorry, quick parenthetical. Yeah. It's either someone you've never heard of or Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> it, I don't think it's Benjamin Franklin. I don't know if he's alive at this point. Yeah, 1780s. Well, by this point, it's 1790. Oh, okay. We're, when we're did in the 90s. Ni- right around then. Because I just read that this is why he. It was, a, it was contentious as to who was going to be the first president. Benjamin Franklin or George Washington, because they were both like the titans, you know, at the time. Yeah. And Benjamin Franklin, recognizing that like he was on death's door, bowed out. Felt a little death coming on. Endorsed Washington and then died like a year or two later. Crazy. Okay. Back to. So hold on. I want to talk about the patent, how patents worked back then. Okay. You apply for a patent. People who have to sign your patent include the Secretary of State, who is Thomas Jefferson. I don't know why that's so funny. The Attorney General was Edmund Randolph, I think. And, wait for it, the President of the United States. Has to sign every fucking patent. <laughs> yes. George Washington signs the patent and is like, whoa, this makes a lot of sense. And a year later, they've got automated flour mills at Mount Vernon. That's amazing. He paid for it. He didn't steal it. That's a fantastic story. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> that is really incredible. So, I mean, I think it's like a great case study, right? Like, this is going to be a recurring theme in, in our discussions. It already is. It's a d- recurring theme in our friendship and our drunken conversations. <laughs> um, it's this idea that it, it's, again, it's this clash between the past and the future. Yep. Which has political ramifications a lot of the time. And it comes from a clash between an idealized past. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's no, I think it's no coincidence that a lot of these industries that are, um, I want to be careful here to distinguish between industries that are most impacted by automation mm-hmm. versus industries that make great poster children for automation in the press and in political rhetoric. I don't so know what you mean. I, by that I mean, um, by that I mean librarians. Uh-huh. <laughs> librarians, I, I don't want to be, um, no, I no, don't want to be sexist a... here, but like I, I would wager to say that it is a field dominated by women. It is a very um, sophisticated field. As a matter of fact, as I've gotten older, the more I've learned about library yeah, science, library the more science. I've been blo- like blown away. Yeah, and yet the plight and the uh, labor and job security of bookish women through history hasn't really been at the forefront oh. of people's minds. Mm-hmm. Whereas the multi generational white working class coal miner or auto or auto maker or auto manufacturer in the, in the rust belt. Yeah. That is a perfect poster child. Right. Because it taps into that, that um, it taps into that, it, it taps into that root of 
Um, you've got multi-generational mm-hmm. family nostalgia. You've got um, the, in air quotes, good old-fashioned hard day's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got white men. Mm-hmm. And it makes a, for a, a really powerful, to some people, poli- a bit of political rhetoric. So the past-orientedness is we need to protect this, right? Mm-hmm. We need to fight against the wave of progress. Mm-hmm. The realistic um, or the realistic, well, realistic or pragmatic way to view it is this change is going to happen with or without us. And what we can do is adapt to the change or we can be caught flat footed, yep. uh, potentially uh, to potentially disastrous consequences. I was having a, a great conversation with a work colleague the other day and he really nailed it emotionally in favor of future being future oriented and kind of embracing the change. Okay. He goes, it's easy for you to see someone in your community and to empathize with them or sympathize with them Mm -hmm. and to not want them to lose their job. Mm -hmm. But how many cobblers do you know? (laughs) Were his exact words. Yeah. How many cobblers do you know? How sad are you that you're, pair of shoes that you wore today probably didn't cost $200. They probably mm-hmm. cost closer to 50 or a hundred dollars. I don't mm-hmm. know what shoes you wear. I don't wear $200 pairs of shoes or $2,000 mm-hmm. pairs of shoes. Furthermore, how many millions upon millions of people have had professions you've never heard of that died out so long ago that you can't even be bothered to know what the profession was. Mm-hmm. And yet your life has been impacted by the, automation and the decreasing cost of, of, uh, of goods and services Mm -hmm. and the secondary and tertiary effects of the marketplace being flooded with those items, Mm -hmm. right? Whether they're textiles or, uh, equipment, machinery services, et cetera. Um, automation helps a lot more people than it hurts, Mm -hmm. but it's a painful, but it's a painful transition. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to sell that point short. Yeah. The thing is, though, that we're running into a, a, a place where the speed of policy mm-hmm. is pretty much fixed, maybe even going down mm-hmm. with gridlock in Congress. Right. right? Um, and yet the speed of change in technology and automation is going up exponentially. And that is the story of the day. Like that is Whoa. the story of this administration. Um, for context, um, I want to try to blow your mind a little uh-huh. bit. A um, little bit of context. Okay. Barack Obama just left office. Uh He was the president of the United States 40 days ago. Uh When Barack Obama was sworn into office, Uber didn't exist as a company. As we look at what the next four years holds, first of all, let's keep in mind how many companies are part of our daily vocabulary that didn't exist four or eight years ago and how staggeringly different that is from most human experience. Furthermore, it's one thing if Snapchat gives you a goofy augmented reality giraffe face, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not really modifying public policy, your health and safety, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the fact that to my knowledge, the term Internet of Things hadn't been coined when Barack Obama became president. And now a few months ago, we had one of the largest denial of service attacks in uh, in human history, which is really a very short <laughs> uh, Internet history, um, where uh, an exploit was used 
on um, very inexpensive Chinese manufactured Internet of Things connected, like uh, Internet connected devices like smoke detectors and baby monitors and uh, smart doorbells. And all of those things have IP addresses. Right. And they were all basically turned into zombies to all direct, like to basically all ping a certain server at a certain time to uh, to wage a denial of service attack. So basically, I didn't. I don't know this at all. Yeah. So the Internet of Things is able to be weaponized, right? Uh-huh. Um, hackers potentially have eyes and ears in your home, right? That, um, that scares me to no end. ISIS is using uh, consumer drones to carry out attacks right. um, in the Middle East, which is s- really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get too dark and too gory, but I heard it. I didn't know that, but I'm I heard it postulated that a um, postage stamp sized piece, a bit of plastic explosives on a, an $800 or $500 parrot AR drone, mm-hmm. um, that if it was flown near your head and detonated would blow your head off. So you go to, uh, a shopping mall or right, right. A, a stadium and, uh, send out a few drones and that's uh, havoc and mayhem. I'm getting off. I'm getting off track now, but I, I, you are, and I do want to make sure that we get back to talking about Uber. But my fear is that the same psychopaths who shoot schools and post offices are just going to put guns on drones, and potentially, potentially, like, that's the scariest thing I've thought of all day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably not coming. Immediately, but like certainly within five or 10 years. I mean, the biggest thing with guns is if you want to have um, multiple discharges of a firearm and you want to keep a drone like flight steady, I think that would be mm. really problematic, which mm-hmm. is why it's a lot easier to just like pick yeah. a target and blow up. Yeah. Um, you only have to do it once. Um, yeah, I didn't even but, thought of explosives, but okay. But it gets very, very scary. So um, going back to Uber, one, there are companies that are going that are going to be um, public policy topics mm-hmm. by the end of Donald Trump's first term that we haven't even heard of yet. Thing number one. Uh-huh. Thing number two, and this is the um, this is a big kind of radical thing to say. I, I admit that, but I'd like to discuss with you and like float an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, let's call it the um, the blockbuster Supreme Court case of 2019. Okay, and it is the International Teamsters Union. Uh-huh. Versus Uber. Or the AFL CIO versus uh-huh. Uber. And this goes as follows. The T- International Teamsters Union in the United States and Canada has about 1.2 million members in it. It is one of the largest union labor unions still in existence. And there are not just those 1.2 million people that are part of the Teamsters Union, but an estimated three-ish million people, uh, excuse me, a three-ish million Americans um, whose living is made by conducting a vehicle in some way or another, by driving a vehicle in some way or another. I would wager to say, and this is might sound radical, but I would wager that those jobs are gone by the time this presidential administration is over. So. Hold, well, hold on. I got to. I got to digest this. There are 1 million Teamsters approximately in the United States and Canada. And which I, I just looked up as a population of 350 million. So a million of them drive for a living and are unionized. And are unionized. 
and about, about three million. million I, th- I think three million total, including the Teamsters, but are oh. employed in taxi driving, Uber, Lyft, um, and any other uh, occupation that involves driving. UPS drivers, FedEx drivers. Think about every. Oh, you're saying there are three million drivers. Three million people who make their living every day by driving a vehicle. Uh huh. And those jobs are going to be gone. From. Gone. To what? Well, how does Uber? That's an interesting question. It's not just Uber. I think we've made Uber an interesting uh, symbol. Well, you put them in the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, because I think that's because the Teamsters is really politically organized, Uh and they're the ones that are going to have a big problem. So Uber just bought a company called Auto, Uh whose entire business was making automated semis, um, autonomous semis. Whoa! Uber bought them, I believe, in the fall of last year. Might have been sometime between September and December. (laughs) So. They're gone. And the reason I made the Supreme Court case, um, the Teamsters Union versus Uber, is because it's focused and it's incendiary and everybody likes to bash Uber. <laughs> that said, we could switch them out. But the point is, right, this is not – Uber is the, is a symbol and they're like the banner carrier. But this is Amazon drone deliveries. This is uh, FedEx working on uh, fully autonomous electric uh, FedEx delivery trucks with little robo-drones that – when you, a little driven – autonomous like uh, like bb8s yeah, like <laughs> that the big truck will pull up to your house and then the little bb8 will drop <laughs> off a package at your front door basically simultaneously there are five to ten fortune 500 companies that are working on putting their entire delivery and driver uh, workforce out of business or out of a job and then there are another handful of startups that are working on uh, disrupting these industries too so that's interesting for a few reasons, right? One, I just want to list them at a high level. As I see them, you can add some, and then we can like riff as we okay. Because I have a counter. I think I, I think I'm ready to defend the Teamsters in this Supreme Court. Okay. Case. So at a high level, I just want to throw a few things out. Go we can talk it. about them or not. Um, there's thing number one. We have no policy mechanism whatsoever to handle this. If these people were veterans, they they have a there is a huge veterans of the armed services social safety net to catch people of whatever age that are mm-hmm. injured in battle, mm-hmm. job retraining programs, etc. We would basically need a some sort of GI bill just for people, just for citizens, three million people for who drive three million just for this one use case, right? But. As time goes by, I mean, I think the 2020s is going to be a decade of tremendous change and tremendous upheaval where most jobs that we know today are gone. And there's a trade-off. There's a benefit to that too. But let's focus on the downsides first. So one, there's no there's no public policy mechanism to handle this whatsoever. Two, there are potentially 1.2 million politically organized people. Mm-hmm. That is an army. I mean, there are elections, there are state and national elections that are tip Donald Trump, right? The margin of error that gave the electoral college to him was, was like fewer, wasn't it a fewer, fewer than a million people in Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and, uh, and Pennsylvania tipped the election to him. So now imagine 1.2 million people. I think people underestimate in a country that's so big, they underestimate how small the margins are sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and not just at a presidential level, at a a representative level, at a mayor, mayoral level. Um, so you've got 1.2 million people that are politically organized, angry and unemployed, right? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Does that lead to civil unrest? Um, I don't think we've seen that kind of professional extinction event in human history before so fast. 
right? The cobblers that I referenced a minute ago right. lost their job over the course of 50 years, right? Right. Long enough for a year old man to hang on to it, but you to know in your heart that I shouldn't get into being a cobbler. Right. I need to become an accountant, right? And you go to school and you get trained in something different from the beginning. Right. But we're going to have people that are 37 years old that oh, have only ever known delivering for UPS right. or driving a taxi cab in New York or driving a semi across states. Right. Which are, are those jobs, I mean, I don't really know the industry too well, but those jobs, if you get fired from UPS, you, I'm sure, I would imagine it's not difficult to get a job at FedEx. You're suit. talking about nobody needs your job at, at all. all. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. At the ground level, right, this is a huge problem for millions of Americans. This is a daily yeah. sustenance problem. But imagine also how that could compound and add pressure onto any number of other issues that have nothing to do with it, right? right. There's an international conflict. Yeah. And 1.2 million people are pissed off and have nothing to do. There's another financial crisis. Right. And 1.2 million people have nothing better to do than to show up at the steps of the state capital near where they live, right? I think or you're being dismissive by saying nothing better to do. I mean, those are <laughs> You're right. That they're freed. Their, their resources are freed to enact the kind of change that they deserve. That's a great way of, of putting it, Ed. I didn't mean to be cavalier, but I, what I meant is that they're not otherwise right. uh, occupied in their daily life. Yeah. And are and from personal experience and from observation, um, losing your job can be a very stressful <laughs> yeah. and confusing yeah. uh, thing, let alone I lost my job and there are no other jobs. You lost, your, you lost your I industry. lost my industry. We're just at the breakwater of this ocean of change that's coming. Uh And I'm very alarmed that, one, nobody's talking about or very few – not nobody. There are very smart, very tech-forward and savvy people that are talking about this. Uh But, like, on a zeitgeist level, this isn't really being talked about. Donald Trump's not fighting Hillary Clinton over this topic. Right. Two – Okay, let's say it breaks through to the mainstream to mainstream consciousness. What do you do about it? Mm -hmm. And three, what secondary and tertiary effects does it have on our country? I have a question. Yeah, this is way bigger than what you just said is way bigger than I had anticipated. And my question is, what is to stop the Teamsters? from getting jurisdiction over the new jobs that are going to be opened up by this automation. I mean, it's not going to be 4 million, but, uh, you know, I just did a quick fact check and the Teamsters were founded in 1887 driving horses. I mean, I don't know what you call it, riding horses? Driving carriages pulled by horses. And in the early 1900s, they basically all switched to truck drivers or to drivers. What's to stop them from suddenly unionizing tech? Unionizing computer programmers? Coders become Teamsters. teamsters. Um, It's not an exact fit, although a very interesting topic of conversation that's maybe for another day is that the kind of information technology workers of the future aren't organized and aren't Mm -hmm. unionized. Um, And that's something that is leading to some problems. Unions weren't legal until 1842, like they rather their legal status was murky. And then in 1842, uh, it's funny that you bring up cobblers earlier because it was the Boston Bootmakers or something like that. Boston Journeyman Bootmakers Society that formed a union because this was in response to the panic of 1837. 
they formed a union to set the price of fixing boots. And, ooh, I also learned this fun fact. Cobblers fix boots, cord waners make boots. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Very good. So if you think cobblers went, went out of, lost their job. Cord waners. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know that word. Um, and one guy was like, no, I don't want to charge your rates. I want to under, undercut you. So they took action against him, and then he he went to the county attorney and said, you know, they can't do this. And the county attorney arrested all the union leaders, saying that the union was a criminal conspiracy. Went all the way to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, Commonwealth versus Hunt, and the union won. That's wild. I'm interested, and I don't know if you if this is part of your knowledge base that I want to dig through your, your brain, but um, did... Do you think either directly or indirectly the timing of that union decision in American history coincided at all with the railroad boom? Um, I think on a larger scale it coincided with industrialization. I right. mean, the, the things were happening all over the world at this time, right? This is like 20 – well, 1842 is right around the time that Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. Right. Like all these people around the world are reacting to the fact that jobs are going away and – and also the transporting of goods, which is which right. blo- just opens everything up and requires um, organization. Right. So back to your question of um, what's to keep the Teamsters from union. So I see a more natural fit. If you are transporting cargo by horse, it's an easier jump to make to driving a truck, especially back then where there yeah. – but. It's harder. I mean, I don't see as cleanly today's UPS driver becoming tomorrow's coder, especially when we live in a world where the coding can be done. A lot of the coding can be done overseas. A lot of the coding can be done overseas. Um, it's also highly technical, so right. it's it's something that would require a fairly substantial amount of job retraining, right? And and um, academic investment in those people. Um, so that so it doesn't. I mean, this brings. I, this isn't the solution because you're still going to have, you know, millions of people out of work. Let's say a portion of them do become coders or some kind of ancillary, uh, join some ancillary industry. But yeah, most of those people go out of work. So even if the teamsters survive by unionizing coders, that isn't going to do. That doesn't mean for the. Three million people who aren't working anymore, right? Who aren't driving anymore. And so, what happens to them? Um, I mean, do you want to quickly talk through the Supreme Court case of twenty nineteen, or are oh yeah, go for or it? Or are there, or is that useless chatter? Because well, it's I don't a know fictional about the Supreme Court case. I don't know about the Supreme Court case, but something else I read recently in regards to you know Uber or even more out of automated companies was it you who told me this? Is that like we're getting income inequality? is reaching unparalleled proportions, Mm -hmm. right? So you're going to have more and more, even more instances where the person at the bottom of the pyramid is making minimum wage and the person at the top is just making ungodly amounts of money. Right. And in order to, or there's nobody at the bottom, is that we don't need workers anymore. I mean, if you carry automation far enough, you don't need workers. Right. 
So how is a person supposed to sustain themselves? I think you have to increase the safety net. You have to increase social program. So there are a couple of thoughts, um, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Did you see the Bill Gates uh, talking point and video that came out? It no. like, went viral last week. And right, right. I saw that it came out, but I didn't watch it. He, he basically um, put out a very interesting thought. I think there's some problems with it, but interesting thought, and that is um, if the future is of labor is increasingly automated – um, why not just tax the robots, right? Mm-hmm. Tax the robots that are replacing the jobs mm-hmm. and use those, use those dollars to fund, oh um, something like a universal basic income. Um, I think the universal basic income is probably the solution we're going to come, come around to. Uh-huh. Um, they have it, but it's going right? so as far as I understand, there are some experiments. Um, right, not on a national level. Not on a national level. There's, I believe, a, a town or there's like a state or province or whatever it's called in, I think, Switzerland that's experimenting with it. Um, and then I think there's a town somewhere in the Rockies, like I want to say Idaho or something, that it that is experimenting with it. But it's a small town. And um, the point is that I think it's – I think it's a good idea, all things considered. Mm-hmm. But I think getting there is going to be – painful yeah right i think it's antithetical to a lot of people's particularly a lot of americans view of how the world is organized Mm -hmm. and breaking that idea Mm -hmm. is never an easy thing right how many progressive leaps forward (laughs) are reactions to really painful events crises right look at uh, the passage of the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s, 1960s uh-huh. 1964, 1965 was on the heels of John F. Kennedy's assassination. And a lot right. of people think that even if it only amounted to five extra votes in the Senate, right, right it, it contributed – Five big votes. It contributed to the momentum of it, right? right. There's, that, there's that deferential kind of martyrdom – uh, momentum that legislation can have in the wake of an assassination. Mm-hmm. There is Social Security being passed in the wake of the Great Depression mm-hmm. and – it was before World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. England's national health program passed in the aftermath of World War II, where you oh, know really? almo- almost that long? almost every man, woman, and child was impacted directly or indirectly by physical injury in the war, if uh-huh. not if not full blown death, right? And so it became a lot more politically uh, sound. I think it was 1948 when national health was um, was instituted in England um, or in the UK. A lot more politically viable in the aftermath of a really traumatic right. and, uh, event. Um, even think about, and I don't. Th- I think this was a failed um, effort ultimately. But Bolshevism in Russia, right, right, is in the in the in the in the wake of World War One and Russia's extrication well, during from, World War One. Yeah, yeah, but they had pulled out of World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Or do I have that? No, wrong? the Bolsheviks pulled them out. Okay. Um, my point is. A, is there a direct correlation between Absolutely. national crises and progressive programs? Question number two. But, this, but you could argue the same thing in the other direction. It just depends who's in power. Good point. What I was going to ask is what crises are we going to have to go through in order oh, to geez, get universal please. basic income? I don't know. So I think what's interesting is that um, another thing about the Supreme Court case that we we're totally inventing right now is um, the tech community is not entirely, but largely a very liberal constituency. Oh, uh-huh. um, but there's a weird mismatch in terms of political affiliation on the court, right? You've got um, classic liberals like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer that are more kind of old school left leaning 
pro-labor, anti-business. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the very business-friendly Republican wing of mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. And what's weird is that the decisions, right, if if Neil Gorsuch gets confirmed to the Supreme Court and if there's a case uh, where the Teamsters Union is trying to block uh, autonomous delivery of mm-hmm. uh, using autonomous semi-trucks, it would be interesting if Uber and other technology companies that mm-hmm. are made up of largely coastal liberal elites, right, mm-hmm. were benefited by – it's a 5-4 majority conservative Supreme Court case that was pro-business and ruled in favor of Uber against the team's Oh, wow. And might that also lead to a shift in the in the affiliations of technology workers yeah. and liberal coastal elites? Um, I think that goes into a lot of crazy stuff. Did you read Colin Woodard's book, American Nations? No, I did not. I recommend this to everybody I talk to. So okay. I'm sorry if I've already recommended it I think it you to recommended you. it to me on the last show. So, Oh, really? I think so. So the, he divides the country into 11 cultural nations, right? It's not just red states versus blue states. It's a – both the red – both the Republicans and the Democrats have built coalitions among these 11 cultural nations and have since the beginning, since the founding of our country, Right. And he talks about how the New England cultural nation, I forget, uh, Yankeedom, I think it's called, is very pro social services. They invented public education and they spearheaded abolition. That's kind of the epicenter of this. Like, no, it's people, whatever people need, the government should step in and help them out. Uh, and then on the other side, you have. Uh, what's called the Tidewater Nation, which is which starts in Jamestown, basically. And there are these people who live on giant plantations 200, 300 years ago, lived on giant plantations, and it's like, no, 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 leave me alone. And from there, you have these competing visions that kind of manifest themselves in different ways around the country, like, you know, the no one would confuse New England for San Francisco, but they're similar. They come, you know, they're kind of neighborhoods are next to each other. Um, So I think that things like universal, was it universal basic basic income income could come, could happen. It's not, it is antithetical to some narratives in American history, like rugged individualism and, you know, go settle the frontier or whatever. But there are just as many narratives in American history where it, that like kind of set the stage for that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think it's as far off or as implausible as, we might think, especially considering the current political climate. Did capitalism hijack the United States? Was the United States founded with capitalist ideas in mind? No. I think capitalism really took root, like really became a thing, became an ism in the 19th century after the foundation of the country. I see what you're saying. Yes, that is true. Because, I mean, it was the country was founded with mercantilist policies. Sure. Which have existed forever. But capitalism, not forever. They've existed for hundreds of years. Right. Um, my friends, the Dutch would Did like Did capitalism to... hijack the country? It's interesting to think about a post-capitalist United States, which that sentence in and of itself would sound demonic and threatening to a lot of people in the country. Right. right. And I'm not trying to rile anyone up. And I'm also trying not to like, you know, have this, this sound bite be taken out of context. However... It's interesting to have that thought experiment. Could that happen? Or is capitalism so inextricably linked to the American identity that it couldn't happen? Mm -hmm. And therefore, if the world evolves beyond capitalism for one reason or another, does that leave the American idea in the dust? 
or does America jettison capitalism and adopt something better going forward in the future? I think that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Robot F. Kennedy. I'm Eddie Quintana. You can find me on Twitter at, at Eddie Quintana. And I'm Nick Daze. You can find me on Twitter at symbol Nick Daze, D-A-Z-E. However you found us, go back there and like it or subscribe or do all the things that people who listen to podcasts do. Um, thank you very much for listening. And um, we hope you'll join us next time. Yep.